Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. This is the Tom Hartman Program. And greetings, my friends, patriots, lovers of democracy, truth and justice, believers in peace, freedom and the American way. Tom Hartman here with you. And we've got a big program today. Starting out with uh, Democrats have to use the most powerful word in politics. Congressman Andy Levin of Michigan is going to be here for a progressive town hall meeting taking your calls. But, you know, to start out, this whole idea of the most powerful word in politics, there is one word that uh, Republicans used to use against Democrats. I mean, you know, when Newt Gingrich came to, came to power, came to the U.S. Capitol in 1996, as I recall, um, and became Speaker of the House, uh, it wasn't when he came to the Capitol, but, you know, when he rose to Speaker of the House, he did it based on the idea that the Clinton administration was corrupt. He had, I, he was my congressman back then. I, I lived in Georgia at the time, and uh, we lived in Marietta, which was his district, and he had run as an anti-corruption candidate. That was his whole shtick, his, you know, I'm fighting corruption. If there is one word that Republicans fear more than any other word, it's corruption. And for good reason, because when a party or when a politician is genuinely corrupt, when corruption is a real word, is a real thing, that word can bring down not just governments, but individual politicians, or maybe I should say not just individual politicians, but governments. Uh, Alexei Navalny used the word corruption against Putin. In fact, the foundation that Navalny ran in, in Russia before he was put in prison was called the Anti-Corruption Foundation. He published a video about Putin's corruption that has been seen more than 117 million times on the internet. Pre corruption was the word that President Zelensky, the current president of Ukraine, used against his predecessor, Mr. Poroshenko. Zelensky, you'll recall, was just an actor. He was a comedian on a TV show where he goes on this rant about how corrupt the government is and the people elect him president in the show. And then he did it in real life. That's how powerful the word corruption was. In Guatemala, Jimmy Morales, uh, the, uh, who became the, the president of Guatemala on an anti-corruption platform, his official slogan was, not corrupt, not a thief. Naftali Bennett just became the new prime minister of Israel. 
pushing out Benjamin Netanyahu with this extraordinary coalition. Uh, yesterday, he said, Israel is not a monarchy. Every government, when it becomes withered and corrupt, is eventually replaced. And of course, that, that was very much the case. The Arab Spring. Stuart Levy noted on Fareed Zakaria's blog back in 2011, Egyptian courts have charged President, former President Hosni Mubarak with corruption. Frustration with corruption is the key grievance of those protesting in the streets in Libya, Syria, and Yemen. Corruption was what took down Richard Nixon. People hate corruption, right? And there are a couple of reasons why. Number one, corruption damages faith in the political system in the country and thus damages the country itself, number one. Number two, corruption weakens democracy. It's kind of a subset or a function of, you know, item number one. And number three, corruption typically involves enriching yourself or enriching your friends or some variation thereof. And that's a form of theft from we the people. So, I mean, this is, this is all the stuff that is corruption, and this is a word that we need to be using against Republicans. The Democrats need to be using this word corruption against Republicans as aggressively as they possibly can. And, uh, you know, unless you have a suggestion for a better word, I mean, this is just, you know, Frank Luntz, when he poll-tested uh, Newt Gingrich's word list back in the 90s, um, the most powerful phrase that he came up with that, that Newt Gingrich used constantly was, quote, corrupt liberal welfare state. Uh, you know, and th I mean, this, is, this has been going on for a long time. So what do we have here? Donald Trump, a corrupt real estate developer who ran a corrupt campaign with help from corrupt Russian oligarchs, created the most corrupt presidency in the history of the United States. Bill Barr. His investigation of Democrats, his subpoenas, even going after Don McGahn's uh, personal information, he corrupted the Justice Department. He should be always referred to as the corrupt former attorney general. Elaine Chao, who is self-dealing as Secretary of Transportation, should be headlined with phrases like corrupt former Transportation Secretary Chao, or DeVos, or Rick Perry, or Wilbur Ross, or Steve Mnuchin. I mean, we have a lot of words to describe what Republicans have been up to since the beginning of the Reagan revolution, and we've used a lot of words over these last 40 years. But at the heart, it's all corruption. Reagan cutting his arms for hostages deal with Iran to defeat Jimmy Carter. That was corrupt. His illegally overturning Central American governments, creating today's border crisis, was corrupt. His taking money from billionaires for cutting their taxes and deregulating their industries was corrupt. President George H.W. Bush uh, pardoning everybody involved in the Iran-Contra treason and shutting down, thus shutting down the special prosecutor's investigation to aid or to avoid his own prosecution. It was corrupt. George W. Bush and Dick Cheney lying us into two unnecessary wars so they could get Iraq's oil for their donors and fellow oil industry executives. That was corrupt. It cost our nation a fortune in money. It's still costing us American lives. And what Republicans are trying to do right now with our elections, trying to make it harder for Democrats to vote, is corruption. And these new laws that give Republican officials the power to throw out or ignore votes from mostly black and Hispanic neighborhoods, it's massively corrupt. This phony audit that the Republicans are running down in Arizona right now, it's corrupt. 
in addition to being an open violation of federal law. And corrupt Republicans in other states are now trying to replicate it. I mean, you had Donald Trump with his corrupt, perpetual self-dealing from having Air Force planes stop in obscure Scottish airports so that we could pour money into his hotel there, to the Secret Service paying millions to Trump properties, to Trump's refusal to release his income taxes, to the Secret Service having to set up porta-potties outside Jared Ivanka's place because they wouldn't let him use the, the, use the bank. It's all corruption. His attempt to end American democracy on January 6th, Trump's, Trump's effort, it was the ultimate corrupt act, as are his ongoing lies about the 2020 election. Bottom line, this is corruption. And we all need to start using this word, corruption, to describe Republicans at every turn. Democrats need to put the word corruption in every single ad they do. I mean, it's literally the most powerful word in politics. They should put, the, the DNC should use the word corruption in their press releases, in their descriptions of Republican actions and policies. Jen Psaki, the White House press secretary, he needs to say the word corruption whenever she refers to the GOP or corrupt billionaire-owned right-wing TV and radio networks. Democrats have to play hardball, bottom line. The future of our republic is at stake. And when your opponents are deeply corrupt, using the word corruption isn't just a strategy, it's an imperative. Tom Harbin here with you, and uh, let's do a national progressive town hall meeting here. On the line with us is uh, Representative Andy Levin, U.S. Representative from the 9th District of Michigan, member of the House Committee on Education and Labor, and also the House Foreign Affairs Committee, member of the Congressional Progressive Caucus. Uh, Andy Levin, A-N-D-Y-L-E-V-I-N.house.gov is his website. You can tweet him at RepAndyLevin. And uh, Congressman, welcome to the program. Thanks so much for joining us. First of all, if you don't mind, tell us about this uh, EV Freedom Act that you are proposing. And, you know, welcome to the program. I'm wondering if there's anything else on your mind that you want to share with our listeners before we start picking up phone calls for you. Oh, wow. Well, it's good to see you, Tom, and I'm happy to talk about the EV Freedom Act. I mean, look, we've got to tackle climate change so the, the comprehensiveness, the speed, the boldness we need, is, it's incredible and it's exciting. And the EV Freedom Act is one part of it. It deals with high-speed electric vehicle charging stations. The president said we need to deploy 500,000 chargers, but where? How? What's the federal role? And the answer is there's two big needs that the market won't meet. Number one, think of all the people who live in places where they don't, they're not in some suburbia with a garage where they can just pull in and charge, you know, apartment buildings and so forth. The other big thing is we need to be able to charge throughout the national highway system because this is America. You've you got to be able to take your kid to Podunk U and drop them off, or you've got to go visit Grandma in Omaha, Nebraska. And so we need to uh, crush range anxiety and make it possible for everybody to buy an electric vehicle by putting them all throughout the national highway system. It gives the Secretary of Transportation, my buddy and former boss, Jennifer Granholm, when we worked in the state of Michigan together, one year to come up with a plan, a second year to come up with financing, and within five years we would have a national network in place in all 50 states in Puerto Rico, 
so that you could get in an EV like my Chevy Bolt and drive from any point in the U.S. to any other without worrying about running out of juice. That's what we need to transform this sector, and then we need to do it in every other sector. My lead uh, co-sponsor of this is Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. We introduced it last Congress. We reintroduced it this Congress. It's endorsed by unions, environmental groups. I even got some of the auto companies and utilities on now. And so, you know, we're really trying to bring the change fast. And stay tuned later in the year, I'll have a bill on uh, buildings, the built environment. What do we do to retrofit existing building stock? How do we move towards zero net energy or better buildings when we build new ones? That's, so that's some of the legislation I'm working on in that front. That is absolutely spectacular. Is this something that um, might uh, pass the House as a standalone bill and then be incorporated into President Biden's infrastructure bill as, you know, as a larger piece of legislation? And if that doesn't happen, it, it just still passes as a smaller piece? Is that the strategy here? The strategy really is to get it into the infrastructure plan, and it may well be part of what we push through a reconciliation package. That's correct. Um, so we really, the point is to get it done. Uh, you know, Secretary Granholms told me they, that NREL, the National Renewable Energy Labs, have already mapped out or are hard at work mapping out, you know, how many chargers we need where so that you would, uh, you know, you could have a comprehensive network. And when you think about it, Tom, you know, this, people are so, they think, you know, jobs and business is sort of at loggerheads with the environment and climate, what we need for climate change. And it's so wrong. Just imagine if we determine that at a big interchange of the expressways, we need 20 chargers. I bet if you own a Hilton Garden Inn and I own a whatever, you know, like a Marriott, Courtyard by Marriott, I mean, I wouldn't want the chargers to be at your place because then everybody would stay at your place. So right, it becomes a competitive advantage. Right. And yeah. with malls, restaurants, hotels, the, you know, the whole retail industry. Yeah. So uh, and this plays out in area after area. So yeah. that's great stuff. It's back. great stuff. Any other anything else? I mean, I've got callers stacked up literally from Florida to California uh, waiting to talk to you. But uh, anything else? Any other points you wanted to make before we start picking up the calls or shall we just jump right to it? Well, I just would say we've got to deal with voter suppression and not just voter suppression, but the whole effort to easily overturn elections if the people in these Republican legislatures don't like the outcome. Look at a state like Michigan, where we have a governor, you know, Gretchen Whitmer. People think, oh, well, that's not going to happen in Michigan. Well, guess what? Our Republican state House and state Senate are passing these bills, and we've got a weird quirk in Michigan where you can get signatures for a referendum, and then before it goes on the ballot, if the state legislature adopts the referendum, Tom, it becomes law and the governor can't veto it. <laughs> so hmm. it's not just southern states. Iowa, you've seen it happen. Michigan, these are states that H.R. 4 wouldn't help. You know, the John Lewis, you know, Restoring the Voting Rights Act, because we weren't, you know, states that were, you know, had to get advanced Subject clearance. To clearance. Yeah. So this is H.R. 1 or S. 1. We've got to find a way to get this done. Yeah. And then, of course, you know, the, the PRO Act, the Protecting the Right to Organize Act, the Equality Act, Violence Against Women Act, uh, the Sensible Gun Reform, all these things that we've passed in the House, we've got to find a way for the Senate to do the business of the American people. And that's the great drama of our moment. 
I, I am absolutely with you. I'm absolutely talk with you. about whatever your folks want to talk about. Okay, well, let's get to it. Robert in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, you are on the air with Representative Levin. Hi, Congressman Levin. Uh, the Democrats have been given a mandate by voters to bring about change, and the overwhelming majority of Democrats in Congress have shown that they're willing to put aside their differences to get a legislative agenda passed. And there are two Democratic senators, Manchin and Sinema, who are willing to join the Republicans in preventing the enactment of their president's and their party's agenda. And they seem to fear no consequences whatsoever for that. Donald Trump and Mitch McConnell enforce a kind of an effective party discipline on the Republicans. Where is the party discipline when it comes to those two senators? Why do the president, the leadership, and the Democratic caucuses allow them to believe that they will suffer no painful consequences for their betrayal of all of us? Well, Robert, I absolutely share your frustration, and it's it's a fascinating question, you know, how to push forward. I think there's multiple parts to it. So first of all, I'm saying to everybody who can hear my voice, it's time to hit the streets. It's time to march. It's time to demonstrate. It's time to occupy offices. Whatever it takes to show that the American people need change, they need action, don't give me a speech about $15 an hour. Give me $15 an hour. Don't give me a speech about affordable health care. Give me universal health care. So w- one thing I think practically, politically, I don't, I don't have a lot of faith in enforcing, uh, you know, party discipline with Senator Manchin, who, you know, whose state was won uh, by Donald Trump by more than almost any other state. The spread between Manchin and the president's, you know, margins is by far wider than any other Democrat in the Senate or the House. But how about this, Robert? Why don't we say to uh, Chuck Schumer, we need you to start using the talking filibuster right now. Should have happened months ago, but anyway, here we are, right? So make the senators, Republicans and Democrats, stick around and make the Republicans talk nonstop to filibuster these changes. And, you know, I want to make clear to everybody, this is what the rules of the Senate are. The minute they're not there actively filibustering on the floor, which is what everybody thinks it's supposed to be in the first place, right, Tom? Right. Well, who's ever in the chair, the presiding officer, can proclaim debate closed. Right. And call the vote. It moves to a majority vote. Yeah. So so we, we need to test this. And why? Because I'm guessing Robert might say, oh, come on, Congressman Levin, that's not adequate. That won't work. Robert, I agree with you. But to bring about change, in my view, we may have to go through this exercise of showing to Senator Manchin, Senator Sinema, having this real live drama of democracy for the American people. Do we want to go through what, two, three, four, five days of 24-hour debate to get anything done? Would you have that on every bill? Is that really a great deliberative body, or is it just trying to frustrate the will of the American people? Yeah, so let's push step-by-step. Yeah, step. I, mean, I, I call this the Jimmy Stewart filibuster, and, and they should also have to have 40 of their members on the floor at all times as well. Representative Andy Levin. Sometimes Louise and I just crave a restaurant-quality dinner at home without doing all the work or driving. 
Well, Cook Unity is the first chef-to-you service delivering locally sourced meals from award-winning chefs right to your door every week. And it appears to be less expensive than other delivery options. Go to cookunity.com slash Hartman with two N's or enter the code Hartman with two N's before checking out for 50% off your first week. We just received our first meals from Cook Unity. And what a huge difference it is to get the best chefs in the country to bring creative, delicious meals to us and you every week. Every meal is handcrafted by chefs and made in local micro kitchens, not large production facilities. We just had the chipotle maple glazed salmon with green beans and mango pico de gallo. It had everything we love in a meal. They have all sorts of options like vegan, paleo, pescatarian, gluten-free, and more. Menus are posted two weeks in advance, so you have plenty of time to choose. Experience chef-quality meals every week delivered right to your door. Go to cookunity.com slash Hartman with two N's or enter the code Hartman with two N's before checking out for 50% off your first week. That's 50% off your first week by using the code Hartman or going to cookunity.com slash Hartman. What makes a life a good one? Is it the adventure you have? Or the friends you find along the way? Maybe it's pursuing your passion while striving to protect, defend, and save what you believe in every single day. So, what makes a life a good one? In the Coast Guard, we think it's all of the above and more. But you'll have to find out for yourself. Visit GoCoastGuard.com to learn more. This is the Tom Hartman Program. Our book today is In Defense of Public Service by Cedric L. Alexander. The subtitle is How 22 Million Government Workers Will Save Our Republic. This is from Chapter 1, Civil Servants and Servant Leaders. Unelected public servants are found at all levels of government, federal, state, and local. But the modern model for all is found in the federal employment systems. More specifically, it is in the concept and operation of the federal civil service system, which governs the appointment and tenure of most federal workers. Those who believe that the unelected federal bureaucracy is a deep state covertly dedicated to the overthrow of elected government see the civil service as a fundamentally unconstitutional innovation, a monster of very recent creation. Such demonizing mythology aside, the truth is that the origin of the unelected government is found in the Constitution under Section 2 of Article 2. The article defines the powers of the executive branch, and the second paragraph of its Section 2 assigns to the president the power to, quote, nominate and by and with the advice and consent of the Senate to appoint ambassadors, other public ministers and consuls, judges of the Supreme Court, and all other officers of the United States whose appointments are not herein otherwise provided for and which shall be established by law." End quote. Thus, the president has the power to make all appointments not otherwise provided for in the Constitution. These are subject to the Senate's advice and consent unless Congress, by law, vests the appointment of such inferior officers as they may think proper in the president alone in the courts of law or in the heads of departments." End quote. In other words, the unelected government, which I have called the fourth branch, is rooted in the Constitution through the powers that it grants either to the president or to Congress. In turn, Congress may grant the president, the courts, or heads of departments the power to hire unelected public servants. In all cases, however, the creation of the unelected government flows from the Constitution. 
the supreme authority and originating law of the nation. The framers of the Constitution recognized that the elected government of our republic was not in itself sufficient to govern us. It cannot alone get government done. It does not alone possess all the expertise necessary to lead, let alone manage, so vast an enterprise as a nation. If this was true in the late 18th century, it's even truer in the 21st century geopolitical and technological environment that is far more complex and that therefore requires a cadre of professionals possessing a wide variety of specialized skills, training, education, and experience. The Constitution does not call these appointments and hires a fourth branch, but that is what the Federal Service and other government workers constitute. De jure, in law, there is no fourth branch of U.S. government, yet it unquestionably exists de facto, in practice, in reality, in fact. Does the fourth branch compete with the three constitutionally established branches? No. It coexists with them as provided for in Section 2 of Article 2 of the Constitution itself. Those three constitutional branches are absolutely necessary to our republic, but they are not sufficient to it, as the framers acknowledged. Moreover, as I've already observed, for most people, most of the time, and in most situations, it is the member of the fourth branch who are, practically speaking, the government. They are the doers. They implement the policies created and interpreted by the three constitutional branches. What is more, although they do not decide or decree policy, they often influence it, not covertly, but by intention and design. The Constitution assigns the Senate the roles of advising on and consenting to most major presidential appointments, but members of the fourth branch do far more advising on a daily basis when it comes to providing the subject matter expertise and feedback necessary to formulate and modify policy decisions. As it turned out, following the coming into effect of the Constitution in 1789, the president, the chief executive, that is the elected official responsible for faithfully executing the laws, directly or indirectly appointed the unelected personnel whom he deemed necessary to execute government. Most of the agencies in which personnel of the unelected government served were created by the executive branch under Article II. And for a full 170 years after the Constitution was ratified, the president had the unquestioned authority to appoint and to terminate what were, in effect, employees of his branch, the executive branch. Indeed, in 1789, Congress explicitly voted, by narrow margin, that it had no authority of approval or disapproval of presidential decisions to terminate appointees. Only those few public positions that were independent of the executive branch, which today are known as independent agencies, were not subject to presidential appointment or termination. In 1829, Andrew Johnson took, uh, Jackson excuse me, took office as the seventh president of the United States. He was regarded as the apostle of the rights of the common man, and he made it clear that he intended to usher in an area of a more highly participatory democracy. During his two terms and under his influence, many states substantially extended the still males-only franchise by dropping property requirements from the ballot and Johnson waged a mighty battle against the Second Bank of the United States in a successful effort to loosen credit and thereby free up sources for finance. In Defense of Public Service by Cedric Alexander. Francesco in Sarasota, Florida. Uh, you are on the air with Representative Levin. Hi, Tom. Hi, Congressman Levin. Thanks for taking my call. 
it might seem like a big question, uh, a long-term question, but I think it relates to every policy. We've had two presidents already that have been elected by a minority. We have many policies which 70% of the American people want, but the structure of the Senate, no matter what we do, will block those policies. I know this is a long-term question, but is anybody, we've given some thought to the Electoral College. Has anybody given thought to the restructuring of the Senate? Is that a possibility? Because without that, the American people are not going to be represented because of the structure of the Senate. You have two, as Tom had said previously, you have two senators from West Virginia and, you know, two senators from California. So you're not going to represent the American people at this point unless you look at that. Well, you're, you know, Francesco, you've got really the Electoral College, the, as you say, the structure of the Senate, two senators for every state, the hugest and the smallest, and then you've got the filibuster on top of it. So those three, and, and the filibuster is just a rule of the Senate. It's not in the Constitution. It's, you know, came about by accident. So we, you know, we certainly should, in my view, get rid of it or radically reform it. But, you know, it's interesting. I forget the name of the case, Tom. I don't know if you know it, the 1963 Supreme Court case. But in 1963, the Supreme Court looked at the states, and a lot of the states did what the U.S. does with the Senate. You know, they had a certain number of senators relating often to, like, to the different their state house districts. It was not one person, one vote. It wasn't equal representation. And the, the Supreme Court said... Do as we say, not as we do. <laughs> you know, so now the states have to apportion their senators in a fair way, but we still have this really rather absurd situation where Rhode Island or Wyoming or, you know, West Virginia has the same number of senators as a state that has 40 or more times as many people as they do. And so, yes, people give it thought, but it would take a constitutional amendment. And so, you know, I think that gives people pause. How about a starting point being uh, adding D.C. and Puerto Rico? Right. Well, so, of course, I voted repeatedly to add D.C. as a state. It's outrageous that you have, uh, you know, six, seven hundred thousand people in our nation's capital that have taxation without representation. They have no voting members of the House or Senate. And Puerto Rico's a little more complicated because I would welcome Puerto Rico as a state, but I'm really into self-determination for the Puerto Ricans. So I kind of favor Nidia Velazquez and Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez's idea. But it's a good point, Tom. Let's start there. Yeah, Just and that's something that could be done with a simple majority of the House and Senate as well. Yeah. Yep. Melissa in St. Charles, Illinois. Hey, Melissa, you're on the air with Congressman Levin. Hello, and thank you for taking my call. My question pertains to the QAnon thing that's going on and the Mueller report. We live in a world where everyone's arguing down here. We've got priests molesting children, covering it up, Boy Scouts being molested, covered up, the Me Too movement. All these cover-ups just make the right wing seem right. Is there any hope that we can release the unredacted Mueller report? I'm not sure I caught that the gist of that completely, Tom, but... Um, the tail end of it was, will the unredacted Mueller report be released? It, it seems like the Mueller report is just another cover-up, and it's making people cynical. I all, the, all the redactions from Bill Barr. 
Yeah, no, I'm I'm in favor of that, and I think it should happen. But that's you know that's something that I think the Judiciary Committee is pushing the administration on, and I hope they um, I hope they do release it. I don't think if it comes out, it wouldn't be 100% free of, of, of redactions because you have to protect you know privacy of individuals who you know aren't aren't implicated in anything. But in general, it should be released in an un- unredacted form, very, very lightly redacted. Nothing like what Barr did, for yeah. sure. David in Columbus, Ohio, you're on the air with Representative Levin. Representative Levin, thank you for uh, your work. What are the Democratic plans for eliminating the filibuster? I think the Republicans eliminated the filibuster on some of their legislation. What can you do? Well, David, so the filibuster is a Senate rule, so it's really up to senators to deal with it. We have House rules that they don't have any say in, and they have their rules. And actually, back in the day, the House used to have a filibuster, believe it or not, a long time ago. But anyway, I agree with you. I think the filibuster should be eliminated. There are a lot of misconceptions about it, and it's quite romanticized, as Tom says. You know, it's tied up with Jimmy Stewart and Mr. Smith goes to Washington and all that. But the truth is that the filibuster in the first many decades of its life was only used for one thing, literally one thing, and that was to prevent black people from being full citizens of this country in one way or another. It's a, it's truly, you know, a leftover piece of, of Jim Crow and we ought to get rid of it completely. Also, another fiction about it is the idea that it's a core piece of the architecture of the Senate that lets it be the world's greatest deliberative body. Well, the very fact that it was only used used to prevent voting rights and similar things means that every other issue in the Senate for all those decades was determined by majority rule. The filibuster was not used for transportation, or what to do with the Russians, or all the other things the Senate deals with. And so we, you know, I don't think it serves any useful purpose, and I think they ought to get rid of it. Not everybody agrees with that. Most importantly, not every senator agrees with that. And so my view is we ought to make them practice the way it's supposed to be. And I think you and I believe that if we did that, it would demonstrate to everybody that it just gums up the works. It actually doesn't facilitate sensible debate. It prevents it. And let the Senate get back to majority rule, and they can still have a lot of courtesies and rights for the minority to have a say, to be able to bring amendments to bills, to have a certain number of hours of debate around bills. There are many ways to protect the minority to have robust debate without stopping the Senate from doing the business of the people, which is what the filibuster has turned into. Yeah, and also if they had to stand and continuously talk to defend their position, America would get to see the arguments that Republicans are making, for example, against or in favor of privatizing Social Security, and we'd get to hear the arguments against it, or whatever it may be that they're arguing about. I think the Republicans' ideas would be revealed as toxic, don't you? Brilliant. Absolutely. That's one of the most important things that would come out. Yeah, there you go. 
And welcome back. Congressman Andy Levin taking your calls for the hour in a National Progressive Town Hall meeting here on the Tom Hartman program. And uh, Lance, one of our conservative callers in Wilmington, North Carolina, you are on the air with Congressman Levin. Hey, Congressman, thanks for taking my call, Tom. Thanks to you as well. Hey, I wanted to um, ask you guys, or the Congressman, have some insight on what happens to the migrants once you know they come across the border. We'll de- we're dealing with that right now, but it's never talked about. You know, there I think 170,000 came across last month. What what happens once they come into the country? How are we absorbing them? How are they getting medical care? How are they getting fed? Where do they go? Well, Lance, thanks for the question. There's no single answer to that because there are different kinds of migrants. There are people who come into this country seeking asylum, and if they come in and they uh, present a credible claim of asylum, then they have to have a hearing. And so those people are given a hearing date and they come in the country if people come in the like cross the border illegally, then you know obviously we don't know exactly where they go or what they do. But the vast majority of people who come in seeking asylum have family members here, and so they generally go and uh, stay with a family member until their hearing. And over 95% of them actually show up for their hearings because these people are actually seeking asylum, which, by the way, is legal in the United States. This is not illegal uh, migration. This is uh, Seeking asylum is completely legal under United States and international law. Am I correct on this? Well, it's actually required, you know, yes. by, under international law for a country to uh, provide an opportunity for people to seek asylum who are fleeing danger, fleeing torture, fleeing violence of one kind or another. So that's absolutely right. They're not... They're, there's nothing illegal about seeking asylum in another country. I mean, then we have the right to adjudicate the claim, whether it passes muster or not, and we do that. So that's the kind of humane system that we have. And the other thing is that the, the evidence is pretty overwhelming that, um, on balance, immigrants add a tremendous amount to our economy and are a real force for good, for growth. And, you know, here in a place like Michigan, you know, you, can't, you couldn't really find an economist who could project out the workforce needs of the economy over the next 10, 20 years and say that um, native-born people are going to meet the needs. There just aren't going to be enough. So, you know, we need to welcome immigrants as we have for the whole history of our country, very imperfectly, episodically. You know, we've had all kinds of different laws. But if you look at the grand sweep of American history, immigrants have, like my great-grandparents who came here with nothing and weren't anybody's idea of, you know, a job creator or something. I mean, hey, my, you know, my dad and my uncle ended up being the two longest-serving members of the United States Congress in history, these two Jewish boys from Detroit whose grandparents, you know, came here as immigrants and pushed around a cart selling notions and had, you know, were peddlers. And so that's the American dream, really. And we got to embrace it for, for immigrants, I think. Lance in Columbus, Ohio, you're on the air with Representative Levin. Yes, good afternoon, Senator. Good afternoon, Tom. Senator, I just wanted to ask you a question. On Fox News, they are really revving up their viewers over the president's canceling the uh, pipeline. And we, and we know that the president, his, his, his approval right now is really good, but 
the way they're going and trying to get people to really do all kinds of things, how are the Democrats going to uh, deal with that? Because they're calling it a job killer. Yes, I'm sure they are calling it that. I mean, the truth is that if we do what we need to do to ramp up onshore wind, ramp up offshore wind, ramp up geothermal energy, ramp up solar, solar thermal, and experiment more experimental forms of energy, energy storage, the batteries we need, not just for electric vehicles, but for uh, intermittent sources of power like wind and solar, there are many, many, many times as many jobs in renewable energy as there are in uh, fossil fuels. And not only that, we've got to pass the Protecting the Right to Organize Act and free up workers to form unions so that we can make sure all these new jobs are good jobs where people could form a union and bargain for a better life. Just like, you know, a century ago, auto jobs were dirty, dangerous, and ill-paying. And it was same with steel jobs, same with rubber jobs the jobs of the of that era and we in 1935 we passed the wagner act the national labor relations act and we saw the by far the greatest organizing wave in the history of our country those workers formed unions and they built the middle class in this country we can do that again right now in this energy transition so that's and then the last thing i'll say tom is we have to take care of any workers who are affected by this transition completely. Hold them harmless wages-wise, health care, benefits, a bridge to retirement if they're close to that, full uh, job training if they want to go, you know, like a GI Bill for them, if they want to go get a new degree. We need to completely take care of workers who may be affected by this. And that's why when I was first asked to join the Green New Deal, when I first came to Congress, you know, Tom, I was an original co-sponsor of that, but I didn't join until they included the words most affected workers along with frontline and vulnerable communities, which is totally appropriate. But politically and in terms of justice, we can't get this done unless the most affected workers are at the center of the table and we take care of them and then we, give, we help the workers form unions if they want to in the new jobs. That's great. Jeff in Portland, Oregon, you're on the air with Representative Levin. Hey, good day, Tom and Representative Levin. Thank you both for the town hall and for being the champions of labor that you both are. Representative Levin, this week, as the caller just talked about, it's been a busy week in news for pipelines, the announcement on Keystone XL, plus a passionate week of protests against the Line 3 pipeline in Minnesota. And as uh, Winona, Winona LaDuke, uh, the indigenous water protector, told Democracy Now! The Line 3 pipeline is part of the Line 5 tar sands pipeline that runs under the Straits of Mackinac, directly affecting and endangering the Great Lakes, which are 20% of the world's fresh water supply. Your governor, Representative Levin, she recently revoked the permit for the decaying 68-year-old Line 5, yet this Canadian pipeline company, Enbridge, is defying her orders. So my question, Congressman, are you and fellow progressives organizing to pressure the Biden administration to support Governor Whitmer and shut down Line 5 and Line 3, too, for that matter? Thank you, Representative Levin. Yes, you're welcome. So, I mean, here's the thing about pipelines and about, you know, where is the oil coming from? This tar sands oil is has the, the worst 
you know, carbon effect of, you know, even more than uh, what people think of normally as a source of oil, which is, you know, drilling in the ground and bubbling crude coming up, you know. <laughs> this is the process to get that oil is very, very difficult. And then you have all the issues you so eloquently raised, including um, the, you know, what a disaster it would be to have a leak in the Straits of Mackinac, the place where Lake Michigan and Lake Huron come together. Um, it, the, the, it would be billions and billions of dollars of economic effect and an, and an ecological disaster. So, yes. All that you're saying is happening, and I, I just want to point out that in addition to our governor, the attorney general of Michigan is uh, sort of representing her on the legal end, even as Enbridge, the pipeline company, you know, tries to keep their pipeline going. Quick math, the less your business spends on operations, on multiple systems, on delivering your product or service, the more margin you have and the more money you keep. But with higher expenses on materials, employees, distribution, and borrowing, everything costs more. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR, all into one platform and one source of truth. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required. It's accessible from anywhere. You cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. You improve efficiency by bringing all your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move. So do the math. See how you'll profit with NetSuite. By popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com Hartman with two N's. netsuite.com Hartman. That's netsuite.com slash Hartman. Man, that sunset is gorgeous. Grill, patio, sunset. Hard to get better than that. Unless you're browsing Carvana's inventory while you soak it all in. Oh, burger time. So sit back, get comfortable. Carvana's got thousands of cars under $20,000 just waiting for you. I could stay here forever. Carvana, where car buying meets comfort meets convenience. Download the app or visit Carvana.com today. Our book today is The Edge of Anarchy by Jack Kelly, the subtitle The Railroad Barons, The Gilded Age, and The Greatest Labor Uprising in America. This is from Chapter 2. On Friday, June 9, 1893, a month after the opening of the Great Fair in Chicago, George Pullman and his friend, the mustachioed retailer Marshall Field, sat down to dinner with 200 men in the ballroom of the Aberdeen Hotel in St. Paul, Minnesota. At the head of the room, a model train fashioned from flowers stretched across a table. The tracks, wheels, and cowcatcher glistened with tinfoil. A newspaper reporter referred to the assembled guests as the big guns of the West. Railroad tycoons, governors, bankers, the tireless strivers of industrial America. In addition to Pullman and Field, they included grocery wholesaler Franklin McVie, uh, flour miller Charles Pillsbury, South Dakota Senator Richard Pettigrew, and many prominent railroad men, including John Egan, who had held high positions with the Canadian Pacific and the St. Paul, Minneapolis, and Manitoba lines. The men had come to celebrate the official opening of the Great Northern Railway, whose main line began in St. Paul and now ran all the way to Puget Sound in Washington. Local merchants were confident that the road would make their city a hub for the immense resources of the Northwest, including wheat, lumber, cattle, apples, copper, and iron ore. 
They had come to honor one of their own, a big-shouldered, one-eyed man with a full beard and a shaggy fringe of graying hair around his balding scalp. He was the proprietor of the Great Northern, the man known as the Empire Builder, James Jerome Hill. After a meal served by liveried waiters, a Toastmaster predicted that future scholars reviewing the progress of humanity from the peak of the 21st century would stand in awe when they contemplated the 1890s, this wonderful age of iron and electricity. Big Jim Hill then rose to assure his guests that the present era was as promising as any time in the past 10 years. Thunderous applause and the waving of 200 handkerchiefs signaled the big gun's approval. In fact, Hill had completed his railroad in the midst of an economic crisis of bewildering proportions. One of his main Wall Street backers, J. Kennedy Todd, was too busy coping with the economic catastrophe to attend. A colleague reported to Hill that Todd has been peeing down his leg for the last month. Businessmen and speculators across the country had reason for high anxiety. Four days after the great fair opened in Chicago, the bottom had dropped out of the U.S. economy. One of the first affected was Stephen Van Cullen White, Wall Street's most daring speculator. Known as Deacon White for his somber dress, he had invested heavily in shares of the National Cordage Company. Managers of that rope manufacturer had gobbled up competing firms and tried to corner the market in hemp imports. It was one of the many business trusts of the day, legal conglomerations of companies that allowed investors to exercise virtual monopoly control over industries like sugar, lead, and whiskey. Cordage was the very definition of a high flyer. During February 1893, the stock was selling for $75 a share. In April, corporate managers made investors smile with a generous 12% cash dividend. Then the firm began to wobble. Rumors reached traders' sensitive ears. Cordage shares dropped precipitously. By the beginning of May, they could be had for less than $19. On Thursday, May 4th, Cordage failed. Deacon White's brokerage company went down with it, along with two other prominent Wall Street firms. Others scrambled to snatch up bargains. The stock exchange erupted. The floor might have passed for a morning in Bedlam, an observer noted. All day, brokers swung from wildest excitement to lulls when they seemed to sink into apathy. Then, hearing a rumor, spotting an opportunity, fearing the worst, they again sprang into frenzy, pushing their fellows out of the way to grab at a trade. Gossip hissed incessantly across the floor. The Sugar Trust was going to rescue the market. Vanderbilt money would be arriving soon. Shares that had been prostrated at least climbed back to their knees. The most remarkable day Wall Street has had in 20 years, the New York Times declared. Comparisons of the trading floor to a madhouse and descriptions of wild scenes were everywhere. Like bedlamites, the brokers, now sure that the worst was over, broke into raucous cheers at the closing bell. Some, no doubt, were simply relieved that the pressure was off, at least until Monday. One broker said it was the worst day he'd ever seen. While there may be a God in Israel, he stated, we need him on Wall Street. Forced optimism prevailed during the weekend. <clears throat> the panic might have been a blip, but traders would wait in vain for Jehovah to visit the stock exchange. May 5th was only the beginning. On Tuesday, May 9th, the Chemical Bank of Chicago failed, leaving the depositors dumbfounded. Two days later, Columbia National Bank, an affiliate of Chemical that had been established on the fairgrounds, also declared itself insolvent. Gone were the deposits of many of the exhibitors. Fair officials rushed to George Pullman and several other wealthy Chicagoans and begged them to put their fingers in the dikes. In the dike, their guarantees headed off an even more disastrous ruin. The causes of the national calamity were complex and ultimately mysterious. Economists who had recently foreseen the steady development of a prosperous period now looked backward and detected warning signs galore. 
Construction had been in decline all year. Consumption of everything from cotton to rubber to coal had been dropping. Cycles of overproduction and bad harvests had ravaged farmers. Democrats traced the cause back to the Republicans who had held power during the past four years. Their economic sins, it was said, were legion. Nervous European banks and governments were now rushing to redeem American notes for gold. The Edge of Anarchy by Jack Kelly. Everett in uh, Detroit, you are on the air with Representative Levin. Yes, sir. I would like to ask Representative Levin, when are they going to open back up the government offices for people to walk in and do their business? It's personal where I spent four years or going on four years trying to get my wife a a homeland security card and it just seemed like after 38 years of working she'd been working since she was 25 and she's 68 now and when she went to renew her homeland security card they got to investigate that's what <laughs> i want to ask him what are they going to investigate after somebody who's been here 38 years thank you Everett. Well, okay, thank, thank you, you so much, Everett. And I don't know, Tom, if there's a way to connect Everett with us, but I would be glad to help Everett tackle that problem. I don't know the, uh, the specific answer to his question, but in terms of when the offices will open back up physically. But let me just tell you a story, Tom. Last week, somebody called me who wasn't my constituent but knew me, and this gentleman said, oh, your constituent's a little shy to call you, but their child lives in another country, but they're all citizens of your district. And then the, the, the son and daughter-in-law of, of, you know, the grandparent had a, a baby 10 weeks ago, and now the, parent, the two parents and the baby need to come back. And because the embassy's been shut down, they can't get, a, a, you know, a passport for the baby. So how can they travel? You know, we, that's the kind of problem we solve every, every single day, whether we're, our office is physically open or not. So, Tom, if, if there's any way for us to get Everett's contact information, we will contact him directly and help his wife. He has, get he has already dropped off the board, but um, okay. I'm guessing he's listening right now. So, Everett, uh, if you call. Right, Everett, listen, Tom, Everett. Yeah my district office you may need to leave a message but there's no press one for this press two for that you just leave as long a message as you want and a real human being who works for me will call you back within a couple business hours and help you out so i hope right. i hope you hear and you can also Everett, i'm sure that uh, with uh, one of the search engines you can track it down congressman how is michigan doing on covid we're we're uh, going to hit 70 percent here in oregon in another week how's michigan going well, so first of all, you may remember that we had this horrible surge, yeah. a very late surge in the spring. Thankfully, that has abated significantly, but we're behind Oregon. And there's, we're, we're, we're sort of above average, but not sure to meet the president's 70% partially vaccinated by July 4th goal. So our governor, our mayors, mayor of Detroit and elsewhere, are really pulling out all the stops. We gotta take vaccines to the people. We gotta go everywhere people are, answer all their questions, and make it just 
no barriers to get a vaccine. Yeah. That's my I'm with you here and around the world, ultimately, so we can stop these variants from popping up. Representative Andy Levin taking your calls. National Progressive Town Hall meeting will be right back. Change starts with you. You can be calling your Democratic or Republican representatives to let them know what you think by calling 202-224-3121. It's the Capitol switchboard. It'll get you right through to them. Uh, Steve in Phoenix, Arizona, you are on the air with Representative Andy Levin. Hello, Tom and Congressman uh, Levin. A little question and statement here. D.C. statehood has already passed. uh, the Congress, uh, House of Representatives, and is in the uh, Senate awaiting action. Now, Puerto Rico, um, which has a population of uh, 3.2 million, um, this would be the 30th most populous state in, our, in the country, um, they, ha- they held an uh, election on November 3rd. They had a referendum. There was a straight-up question, yes or no, should Puerto Rico be, be immediately uh, admitted as a state to the U.S.? And the results are in, and it was 52.5% yes and 47% no. We're missing a golden opportunity here. This would afford Puerto Rico all the benefits and everything they so richly deserve to be a state of of the United States and the protection that's afforded. And, uh, you know, we could have elections in 90 to 120 days after they're granted statehood. What can we do? What can you do Congressman Levin to move this ball forward? Because we're missing such a golden opportunity. Thank you, sir. Well, thank you, Steve. So they're actually, interestingly, in the in the House anyway, there are competing visions about what to do. Some people favor moving immediately to, to you know, prove statehood, although, as with D.C. statehood, there's no indication it would move in the Senate. But um, the two uh, Puerto Ricanas in the, in the U.S. House, Nidhi Velazquez, and Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, both of New York City, both favor a slightly different process that would take a little bit of time, not years, to have a democratic process that they think would be more robust and may well lead to statehood and may well lead to statehood quite soon. So to be honest with you, I'm just being an ally to them, respecting them as their connection with their homeland, their constituencies, and so I'm supporting that process. It may be a little slower than what you're talking about, but I think it's probably the right thing to do, and it's certainly, you know, there's been an independence movement, a commonwealth movement, a statehood movement in Puerto Rico for many decades. There's been a lot of arguments, and basically they're saying let's have not, you know, a 52-48 vote, like that, but a real democratic process of consultation to decide what the best way is. And so I'm supporting that. I don't know what your thoughts are, Tom. I don't. I'm with you. I'm an ally for the folks who know more about it than I do. David in St. Paul, Minnesota, you're on the air with Representative Levin. Hey, Representative Levin. I was wondering if you had ever heard that the size of the representatives in the House was set back in 1913 by an act or a law and want to see if you'd be more in favor of lifting that to be closer to what President Washington said should be one House member per 30,000 people. Uh, well, I would certainly not be in favor of that because the new House for Michigan, after redistricting, we're each going to, re- if I'm, 
if I'm able to get reelected, we will each represent about 775,000 people. So to get to every 30,000 people would be over 20 times as many representatives. So that would be 8,000 or something. So, but let's say you don't mean that literally and you mean it somewhere in the middle. I mean, I'm not completely against expanding the House a little bit in principle, but I'll tell you this. I feel like the size of the districts now, yeah, they're a lot bigger than a state Senate and especially a state House district, but I really do feel like we are super close to the people. People know me. People stop you in the grocery store. You can cover a whole congressional district, you know, every district work period, get to a lot of the communities. And I feel like the size of it works pretty well. And 435 is a pretty big body to manage administratively. So I don't, you know, I'm not personally in favor of making the U.S. House a lot bigger. Although, you know, I respect those who think that would be a good idea. Congressman, we just have 30 seconds to the end of the hour. Thoughts on what people should be paying attention to and and activists should be doing in the next uh, coming weeks? Absolutely. I mean, I think what we need to say is that a modest bipartisan infrastructure program is not enough. If the president can achieve one and, you know, get Republicans on board for something, it's uh, for definite for sure that it won't be anything like his American job plan and America's family plan. So we need to really meet his vision head on to move this country forward. Congressman, thanks so much for dropping by. It's great having you with us. Thank you. Thanks, Tom. Thank you. You too. Great talking with you. Congressman Andy Levin, we will be back with, uh, oh, we won't be back. It's the end of the hour. That's it for the show. We will be back tomorrow. Same bat time, same bat place. And uh, don't forget, in the meantime, democracy is not a spectator sport. It begins with you. So get out there, get active, tag, you're it. We'll see you tomorrow. Have a great afternoon. You've been listening to Tom Hartman. For audio and video archives, visit TomHartman.com. 